So there's a text for you, huh? Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. What, what a, that, that really is, it, it's become an incredibly cool text to me, even though when I first read it and thought, I get to pre, I have to preach this text, figuring out who those spirits and, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And then as I work through it, and I'm just here to tell you that God's done a work in my own heart working through this text, and I hope to be able to communicate to you the depth of the text, realizing there's some debatable parts to it, et cetera. But, but it really is a phenomenal passage. <clears throat> you know, last week we celebrated <clears throat> the high point of Christian faith, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Just out of curiosity, is there anyone here that last Sunday was your first Sunday at College Park? Just curious. Is there, I'm looking around, I don't see anybody. That's good. Hopefully some from last week would come back. Good. Well, invite them back if they're not here, and you invited them last week for sure. So we're back in 1 Peter today. You heard the text read. I hope your Bibles are open. And if you remember the background that Mark's been bringing us through in Peter, it, 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 we're, we're working with the theme of exiles, of those who are not in their home country, or aliens is another term that sometimes is used, and we're relating to the people that Peter was writing to in the first century that they were Christians who were claiming Christ, and they were living in a world that was antagonistic to Christ. And as a matter of fact, part of that reality is you're going to suffer. It's that seeker-sensitive gospel message. Suffering is a part of it. Uh, As a matter of fact, the text that Mark finished with last two weeks ago is in verse 17, and this sets the context for where we are this week. It says this, For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will for them to, then for doing evil. And I want to say, that's not fair. I mean, I said that when I was a kid. <laughs> it's not fair. I mean, if I'm doing right and somebody else is doing wrong and I get in trouble, that's not fair. And, and then, I, then I open my Bible and I read the Old Testament and I read about Job. You remember Job? That was fair? I mean, Satan? <laughs> really, come on. And, and then I read about Joseph sold into slavery. Then I read about Daniel thrown in the lion's den and all three of those guys. Now, the one thing about those Old Testament stories is it all turned out, they all, they kind of lived happily ever after, right? I mean, when you think about them. But then you move to the New Testament, you got John the Baptist. So, happily ever after is a head severed from your body. That, that's not that happy. Um, and then you have James. And then even Peter, the guy that wrote this book, and tradition says and tradition isn't perfect, but there is a tradition that says that he was crucified. Remember that? He didn't want to be crucified like Jesus, so he wanted to be, be crucified. In any case, Jesus had prophesied that Peter was going to suffer, and he's writing, so before that happened, obviously, to a group of exiles, and he said, suffering is a part of it. As a matter of fact, it's fair to say, if you read through this text, that Christians embrace suffering, or at least Christians look at suffering as an opportunity to share in the life of their suffering Savior, and that there's a thing about suffering for a Christian as an alien, as an exile in the world, that it draws you to Christ, that it draws you to Christ. And there's a part of me that wants to say, I want to get drawn to Christ by other means, (laughs) please. And that's not the only means, but it certainly is one of the ways in which we are able to, so, so Paul would say, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, that, that that's, that's part of what this whole Christian thing is about. And the text this morning is going to help us in that suffering reality 
in, in, in a way that I found incredibly profound. And there's going to be three pictures that, that, that just so happens to make for a three-point sermon. And they're actually there. There's three pictures, and when I, when I originally did this text of how to persevere through suffering, I thought the first point and the third point, I'm really into them. I under, and, the, and the middle point, I hope to survive as a preacher. I hope we can get past this. I hope we can get through it. And now I'm thinking the first and the third are really, really good points, and the middle one is even better. So hang on. And I, and I want to I do a little teaser here. You guys into being teased in a good way? So some of you know that I, on occasion... I like to use visual aids. It helps me to think visually. And I've got two visual aids that came to me from God, kind of. And, and literally, it was this morning. So I, I went scrambling to find these two visual aids. And the first one is, I, I like getting really profound visual aids, by the way. Does that show up? It's a boat. It's, it's a grandkid boat that works in the bathtub if you're a two- or three-year-old doesn't work so well maybe in church, but there's, there's two principles in this middle point that I want you to think about. There's a boat, and then this, was the ba- this is a baptistry. So, you got a boat and a baptistry, right? You guys relate it? You got, you got it? You're figuring that out. Baptistry, you can open this thing up, and you can take your dolls and dunk them in there since we are into immersion here at College Park. So, boat and baptistry. So, hang on to those thoughts because I'm going to put it right here. You all right with that? Boat and baptistry, because those are actually the visual aids that Peter uses in trying to help us to understand how are you going to grapple with suffering in a world where if you're a follower of Christ, you're going to suffer. That's a part of it. How do you do it? So, picture number one of Jesus that comes out in this text is really, really cool, and it's that Jesus suffers. He suffers. Now, now again, watch how it looks. Go to verse 18. The context is for it's better to suffer, in verse 17, for doing good. And then in verse 18, it says, oh, by the way, since Peter said it's better to suffer, and it kind of assumes that you're going to suffer, so if you're going to suffer, suffer for doing good, don't suffer for doing bad. And by the way, Christ also suffered. And I've gotten so used to that, as I was studying the text, it made me think one of the scandals of Christian faith is that our God suffers. Because if I'm writing a story about a deity, the supreme being, he doesn't suffer. He's the king. Somebody else suffers. And maybe a nice deity would help that suffering someone else, but that deity doesn't suffer. You know one of the beauties of Christian faith? One of the things that endears me to Jesus, I mean, that's our symbol, right? It's a suffering savior. He came and he engaged in our suffering. So, on those days when your suffering seems so incredibly difficult, can I say this to you? Jesus suffered more than you're ever going to suffer, and that's part of the point of what Peter's bringing out. And, and it should jar your world to say, God came and suffered. He became the God-man. Jesus suffered. He also suffered once for sins… There's a lot of theology in that. I'm the pastor of theological development, so I think somebody ought to write a book on that. It was once for all. It wasn't as though he repeated it. He did it, and it was sufficient when he did it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He died once for all. But here's the punchline, at least for me, in this text this morning. It's the righteous for the unrighteous. It's the just 
which that word for righteous could be translated just, and if I were translating it, that's the way I would have done it, just for the unjust. And in the middle of just and unjust is a really profound word, and it's the word for. You can say it, for. You know how you spell it? F-O-R. And if you're young people and you're you know, like I saw that there's a little thing for young people to draw pictures of. Write the word F-O-R. And I remember one time in my family, my daughter, when she was really young, wrote on the walls, which kids, you're not supposed to write on your walls in crayon. That's wrong. Don't do it. And she denied it and blamed it on her brother. Problem is, her brother couldn't write, and <laughs> she had spelled out a couple words, so it's kind of a dead giveaway, you know. So there was a part of me who wanted to say, hey kids, you can't draw on the wall unless it's the word for, F-O-R. Put that all over your house. It's one of the best words. Karl Barth was arguably one of the greatest theologians of the 20th century, and I don't agree with a lot of what Karl Barth did and wrote, but he was asked, what's your favorite word in the New Testament? And he's a German scholar, so he pulls out a Greek word, and the Greek word was hooper. That's four letters. But if you translate it to English, it's the word for. It's the word for. It's the word for. You know what for means? It's only three letters. It means in behalf of. It means instead of. It means in place of. It means in substitution for. It means that the just suffered for the unjust. That's profound. I mean, that makes you say, that word for is huge because I asked myself this question. On the side of the equation, just for the unjust, which side do you sit on? (laughs) All the just, raise your hands, and I'll dismiss you from the surface. You don't need to be here. And then I say, all the unjust, raise your hands, and we, the people of God, our hands are quick to be raised, and then to say, Christ suffered for, and then put your name in there. He suffered for the unjust, the just for the unjust. That's suffering. And and then there's a part of me that wants to say, that's not fair. And then I want to say, thank you, God, for what in my economy doesn't seem fair, because that unfair scandal of the cross where the just suffered for the unjust is my only hope. That's it. And what a hope that is, isn't it? So I try to think of illustrations of substitution. <laughs> and, you know, the, the greatest illustration of substitution is the one that was on the cross did what should have happened to you and me. That's the greatest illustration. But, you know, just before that, you remember, I mean, we've just been through this Good Friday stuff. You remember that there was a time when a group of people brought Jesus the just, and they brought him to Pilate, said, kill him. And Pilate, he's, nobody, he's nobody's holy man for sure, but he did a you know, quick analysis, and he said, this guy's, this guy's okay, he's just. And so he said, how am, I, how am I going to get around this? And so his plan was, I'm going to find a sleazeball, unjust, slimy, his name's Barabbas. I mean, nobody is going to argue that this just guy, Jesus, even if you don't like him, maybe he's a goody two-shoes, whatever, nobody that's rational would argue that you would take the sleazeball instead of, that's, that's a Greek word, by the way, sleazeball, in place of this just person, and he brings it out, and he makes the offer, the inarguable offer, and they say, give us Barabbas. We want one like us. We're unjust, and we want to live in our injustice or in our unjust world and kill the just one. 
And I would imagine that the angels of heaven maybe are scratching their head and saying, that's what you figured those people on earth would say. And the people on earth ought to be saying, praise God that the just suffered for the unjust. What a picture. I mean, what a profound picture. I love that word for, don't you? Which makes me say this, that as you and I suffer as exiles in the world, and you are going to, and I think within our, you know, at times I was thinking, in the United States, do we suffer? Probably not much, but on some level, certainly we suffer with trials, and then we also sharing our faith and maybe living for the Lord on occasion, we're going to suffer. And I can tell you this, that it's going to happen more, not less. That's what, that's what exilic living is, that it ought to draw you to your Savior. On the days when you're suffering, you ought to say, Jesus, I love you more because you suffered for me, the just for the unjust. Thank you, Jesus. And and he's our model. I mean, he is. He's the model. That's the point of Peter. It's like, you're going to suffer unjustly. Jesus suffered unjustly. Look to him when you're suffering. And then this morning, I would also say this. You may be here this morning, and and I've talked to people like this, and, and you'll say, you know what, this Jesus Christianity thing sounds intriguing, but if you knew how bad I was, I mean, I don't deserve it. I'm, I, I mean, you know what I did in my life? And I've had, I'm a pastor, so people will say those kind of things to me. And then I kind of smile a little bit, not in glee of all the things that they've done bad, but to say this, you're the kind of person that Jesus suffered for. <laughs> he didn't suffer for the just. He didn't suffer for the people that wear sports coats on Sunday morning which I still wear a sports coat on Sunday morning. He didn't suffer for the, he actually did suffer for those that wear sports coats. Let me get that right. He suffered for the unjust. He suffered just for people like you in order that he could bring you to God. Isn't that a great message? So we got the message of all messages. Man, you're not too bad to be able to come to the Savior who suffered the just for the unjust. So point number one, picture number one, suffering Savior Picture number two in this text, and here's where, here's where it gets fun, <laughs> is the saving Savior. Jesus saves. So Jesus suffers, Jesus saves. That's picture number two. And, and it's in the remainder of verse 18, and then it goes down through verse 21. So verse 18 says, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, which by the way, if the verse ended there, I would say, that, that's nice, Jesus is a model, he's a martyr, he's a good guy. I could be a good liberal because, yeah, let's go and, go and do likewise. Be like Jesus. Be like Jesus. And you know what? You ought to be like Jesus. He was a good guy. But that next word is a huge word that when you, when, when you write four all over the walls of your house, also write the word that, T-H-A-T, which translates a really important New Testament word as well, the word that. The word that is a word that introduces a purpose clause. Now, there you go. There's your, actually it's a Greek lesson, but it's kind of an English lesson. So when Jesus suffered the just for the unjust, the period isn't there. There's the word that, which says there was a reason for it. He had a purpose behind it. It's like I've ruptured both of my Achilles tendons. Anybody else like that? Just curious. <clears throat> See if I have any people that I can connect with. Well, I remember when I went in, it's two different doctors went in, I went, and they, here's what they told me. We're going to cut your leg with a knife. And I'm thinking, <laughs> I was just talking to somebody last week, by the way, and I guess the new technology of Achilles tendons, they don't cut your legs with a knife, they just let it heal. I don't know. I had both of them cut with a knife. They slid it. And I mean, if you want to see my scar afterward, small fee, show you. Both of them. 
And, and here's what he in essence said, I'm going to cut your leg in order that, there's a purpose, it isn't just to cut your leg, it's not just I like cutting legs, that's cool to cut legs, I'm going to do it in order that I can fix your Achilles tendon, and they did, both of them did a pretty good job. Jesus suffered the just for the unjust in order that, what does it say? He might bring us to God. The purpose for his suffering wasn't just a martyr suffering, it was in order that he could procure for his people salvation by bringing them to God. So like last week when we reflected on the death of Jesus Christ, it wasn't just a standalone event, it was a purposeful event, and the purpose of it was to bring the people of God to God, (laughs) to bring us to God to bring us in relationship to God. And then it goes on and it says, there are two really cool participles actually, being put to death in the flesh, that's, that's the cross, he was put to death in the flesh, but, that's, that's a pretty cool word too, right? We all affirm that's a great word. He didn't just, wasn't just put to death in the flesh, but also he was, and then the text goes on, he was made alive in the spirit. There was that resurrection of Jesus, death resurrection of Jesus, which then allows us, the unrighteous, to be able to come into a relationship with God the just because of Jesus. And you know what? The people of God have throughout history said, praise God, I mean, that is what salvation is, right? Salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. It is what causes the people of God to say as exiles, when difficult times come, Jesus saves, and he saved us. Now the text gets a little dicier. (laughs) And, And I think that Peter gives two, what I would call, illustrations or applications of this salvation. Look at the first one. It's in verse 19. It says this, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight people, were brought safely through water. (laughs) What does that mean? That, that is the question, right? What in the world does that mean? I think the first century readers would have understood it a little bit better than us. And and by the way, in my little theme here, it's the boat picture, right? It's the ark. And and there's there's here's here's what Martin Luther said. Remember Martin Luther? I mean, we just talked about him in, in the Reformation. Martin Luther had this this really profound Martin Lutherian statement. He said this: A wonderful text is this. A more obscure passage, perhaps, than any other in the New Testament, so I don't know for a certainty what Peter means. Which makes me say, thanks a lot, Luther. It didn't help me at all. Then I probably read another 10 commentaries, and between them they said there could be as many as 180 different, you know, if you just have little different nuancing and options as to what's going on in the text. 180, so I got to spend time figuring out which one. I didn't look at 180. They kind of break down into four main categories that I think break down into two main categories. Let me tell you what they are, then let me tell you what I think, and let me tell you what I think the point of the text is. It could be when it says, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey. A lot of scholars would argue that this is Jesus through Noah. So Jesus through Noah, it's kind of like a historical event. Jesus through Noah proclaimed to a group of renegade rebel people. I mean, the earth was full of sinners at the time of Noah. You know how many people were saved when the flood destroyed the whole earth? I heard somebody say eight. A courageous person said what the Bible says. There were eight. You know how many people were on earth at the time? 
I don't know. The Bible doesn't say. But I'm here to say that there were a boatload of, well, it wasn't a boatload. <laughs> there were a bunch of people. Like, I would imagine you could count in the millions. That wouldn't be an unthinkable thing. Certainly in the hundreds of thousands. Only eight made it. And, and then, so they would argue that it's like Jesus prefigured in the Old Testament speaking through Noah to these people that just carte blanche rejected that message because they were imprisoned in their own sin and they couldn't and didn't accept the message of the gospel and only eight people made it. And that's possible. When I wrote my manuscript, I, which was like last Wednesday, I, I thought Wayne Grudem had it right. That's it. And then... And then I changed my mind. <laughs> I think it was Thursday or Friday. Because the other position, which I now take the other position, so how's that? I mean, doesn't that make you feel really comfortable? I was joking in first service, so this will probably be the last time I preach. Because I'm changing in the middle of a preparation for a sermon. I think this, the other option is that these spirits in prison are, were actually there. And when you read that Genesis account in Genesis 6, and if you haven't read it, read it. Read it and fear and I'm not quite sure what went on in Genesis 6, but the flood wasn't just God saying, you know what, it's time we clean things up here. Let's do some spring cleaning. The horror, the atrocity of evil in the earth at the time of Noah was like never before or never since. It appears, I think, that there was some connection between demonic evil spirits and humans, and it's almost as though humanity and evil spirits came together, and I'm not sure what all that means, but whatever it means, it was an incredibly devastating, evil, horrible reality in the world, the likes of which the world will never see, and God said, I'm destroying the world to get rid of, and as a matter of fact, then he put those demons in some sort of a prison, which by the way, Peter talks about this in 2 Peter as well. So if you want to look at 2 Peter 2, he alludes to this demonic imprisonment. And then apparently the text seems to be saying that in Jesus' resurrection and ascension, he's defeated evil once and for all, and it's as though as he's ascending up, he's proclaiming victory over the worst evil the world has ever seen in those spirits that are in prison. Now you say, oh, well, so what? Here's so what. You know why that's encouraging? You know why the boat's encouraging? Because God could have wiped them all out. God saved eight. And I think the point of the text is, in the worst that the world has ever been, God still saved. That God saved his people even when the world, I don't know if it came from, but the phrase come hell or high water, demons and evil penetrated the world, and God took his eight people and said, but they're not getting you. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I think it's intended to encourage those first century Christians who would have been plagued by Jews who didn't agree with them. I mean, it was the Jews that stoned Stephen, right? And, 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 and then, then Peter was, he, I mean, he was killed as tradition has it, and not the only one, by Romans. So you've got Romans, you've got Jews, you've got all kinds of oppression. So you're a Christian saying, it's like the world is coming in, and here's what, Noah, or here's what, what Peter is saying. Yeah, it looks really tough, but let me tell you, in the toughest time, back in Noah's time, I mean, that was the worst. God didn't give up on his people. God saved his people. So you can have hope. And, and so, you know, when you look around the world today and you say, man, what kind of bombs do they have in North Korea? And I think they even said they could send them over here. 
I don't know if they really can or not. How about what's, what's going on in our country? I mean, when you start to get afraid and you start to say, wow, the world is going to hell in a, whatever that phrase is, in a handbasket or something like that. When it looks like all hell is breaking loose, you, 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 need to, you need to pick up a boat and say, on the day of Noah, it was worse than it is now, and God didn't give up on his people. God saved his people. It, I think it's intended to give them security, to give them a sense of, that's right, it was so bad back there. Yeah, it's kind of bad now. I'm suffering now, but not like those guys suffered back there. And Noah persevered for 120 years in proclaiming this gospel, and I better be proclaiming the gospel even to a world that seems like they don't care at all because God saves his people. You know, as I was going through this and found myself incredibly encouraged with a really bizarre text, there's a kind of a, it was new to me, but I guess it's not a new song. I guess we've sung this once at College Park. We sang it at the Gospel Coalition. It's, He Will Hold Me Fast. It's a song, I, I wish I could sing it, but if I did, you would hate it. So here's the way it goes. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so, he will hold me fast. You know what this boat picture is? He's going to hold you fast. He that began a good work in you. Somebody told me this verse this morning. He's going to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. That I think that whole Noah picture said, when hell and evil was at its highest, God saved Noah and seven other people. And so, however bad it gets for you, if you're one of his, he's got you. <laughs> he's got you. And so you can endure and you can persevere. So I love that boat picture. But then the text goes on. As if that wasn't bizarre enough, then he gives another, and I don't know that this is as bizarre, but it's been, it's been incredibly controversial, and it's in verse 21. He says this, baptism, that's the baptistry I've got there, which corresponds to this, now saves you, what? But, listen to this, the, the word not is a pretty important word too. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. And so, and so then, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, so then you kind of want to ask the question, and here's the question that was asked and is asked, and I think it was maybe even Peter anticipated it a little bit. So are you telling me that I need to get baptized to be saved? And, and by the way, there are people in our city that teach that, and some of you, I'm sure, have come out of backgrounds that teach that. And, and there's a whole lot of discussion that can be had, and I don't have time this morning to go into all the, the discussion and the nuance. Let me just say this. I do not believe that you have to be baptized to be saved, nor does College Park Church, nor, in my opinion, does Paul, who said, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast that salvation is by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. That's how you're saved. I think Peter said that, didn't he? In verse 18, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Jesus is the Savior. But then the question is, so what, what world does Peter mean here? And I think with the ark illustration, he's saying Jesus is going to hold you fast in the hardest of times. In this context, I think he's saying baptism, which... And then he uses a word now corresponds to this, corresponds to the ark. This baptistry and the ark have similar, the, the word is antitype, actually, that there, there's a type. 
and which now saves you, and then he gives the negative. Now, unless you think that that's salvation, meaning that you're, you're, that, that baptism, you're going to need to be baptized to be saved, he's saying it's not the removal of dirt from the body. I think by that he's saying it's not just that external act that you do in baptism. It's not, it's not that that saves you. But, it's another really cool but, as an appeal to God, and that word appeal could be translated as a pledge, as a pledge to God for a good conscience or through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, and I think what Peter is saying is this, and I think if he were here with us today and we said, Pete, what in the world did you mean by that? I think he would say, well, I understand how you might think that I, that I said that, that baptism actually saves you. He, he would say this, baptism is really, really important. It's really important. It's important as a sign, a sign that signifies, you notice how those two words go together? A sign signifies. So the sign is pointing to something else, and what it's pointing to is your clear conscience or your pledge or your commitment, or I would even say this, your faith in this risen Lord. So what baptism is, and that's the way we would teach it, and frankly, I think that's the way Peter would look at it, that it's a statement not of the, the external act, although that's important, you should do that, but it's that, and, and probably this happened in the first century, and by the way, this is the way we do baptisms here, and our baptistry is somewhere over there, underneath that. <laughs> and in that baptistry, we'll ask people this question, are you a believer in Jesus? And if they say no, we'll say, what are you doing in here? <laughs> And then we'll say, are you committed to following Jesus? Are you willing, are you committed to being a disciple of Jesus? In this water of baptism, are you affirming and stating for all to see that you're a follower of Jesus and that you're a pledge? It's a pledge. And apparently in the first century, they had that kind of a pledge, and we do the same thing. So that the act itself isn't salvific, but it represents salvation of one who trusts in Jesus for his salvation. I think Peter would also say this, you know, you guys at College Park asking the question of does, does baptism save you, you got really nice cushy seats. Those are nice seats. And you sit back and relax, you even got a heated pool there. I mean, you dunk them and it's kind of heated and it's really easy, isn't it? And, and then we clap and everybody's happy. He said, when we baptize people, there's a mark on them, not literally, figuratively, you're a baptized person? Well, you're going to be shunned. <laughs> I was over in India a year and a half ago, went with Nate. It's always fun to go to Nate with Nate anywhere, certainly to India. And I remember hearing the testimony of this guy who had accepted Christ, and, and his family kicked him out, and, and it was like, I've heard those stories, but I looked in his face, and he wasn't flinching. He said, they told, don't come home. And he was, he was relatively young. He didn't for, I forget, it was like 20 years. And then they said, hey, why don't you come? Let's see if we can talk again. He went home. And then they said, are you a follower of Jesus? He said, no. And they said, don't ever come back again. And I'm sitting there thinking, I don't know. When I, or when we baptize people, we're just like, hey, you know what? Happy, cheerful, and we ought to be. That's appropriate. For him, that baptism, for Peter, the baptism was a pledge and a commitment that I'm going to follow Jesus even to death. And for some, that's what it was, which makes me ask this question. What's, you can debate whether baptism saves you or not, but then I want to ask this question. What's your level of commitment to the Jesus who died for you? I mean, we talk about 
discipleship and evangelism that we're going to share the gospel. And, and I was, when I was going through this text, I, was, I literally was crying because I thought, man, I'm baptized, I made a confession of faith, a profession of faith, and am I willing to live up to that profession of faith that I made? And I think Peter is saying this, Jesus saves, he's the sufficient Savior. The boat says, you can be secure in him, come hell or high water, he's going to hold you fast. And then I think he's also saying, and you know that confession you made in that baptismal? Man, as you live up to that profession, you may suffer But the risen Lord says, I got a good end to this. The good end is resurrection. That's where it's all going to end. I've got an illustration, kind of a picture that I hope comes up here. This was taken a couple of weeks ago. (laughs) Thank you. It was actually a couple years ago. It's in Maryland, Lake Waterford, Maryland. None of you have ever heard of Lake Waterford, Maryland. As soon as I say that, somebody after the service will say you have. It's in Pasadena, Maryland. It's real close to the Chesapeake Bay. It's where I grew up. And if you look over on the right-hand side, there's a lady with dark hair that's closest to the water. That's my mother. Some of you know my mother. And next to her, I think, is my sister. And then next to then that's Don. He was the baby of the family. And the guy out there on the water, it's me. I got dunked under by Randy Noseworthy from Calvary Baptist Church a few years ago. And then a few years after that, I grew up and I had a little girl. And by God's grace, I was able to baptize her in Upper Marlboro, Maryland, as a pastor in a church. And four weeks ago, by God's grace, she had a little boy who's growing up, professed Christ, said he wanted to follow him, and I got to baptize him. And I'm like... I look at that, here's what struck me, and I made a profession of faith that was affirmed in my baptism, and I, I tried to live that out, but I, here's what I think would really be a healthy reality for the church, and that is that we go back and reflect on our baptism. So I did that in this sermon, and I said, by God's grace, I've got to be committed to the pledge that I made however many years ago that was, and I want to say to my daughter, you've got to be committed to death. You know how hard that is to say to your daughter? You think that's hard? Try saying it to your grandson and say, hey, Parker, you know, you know how important this thing is? That when your friends and whatever else, hell and high water comes to you, Jesus is going to hold you fast and you're going to stand by your faith until you die. So then I asked myself this question, College Park Church, my church, us, we, is that the way we look at our faith? Is it? When I think of evangelism and discipleship, is it just like code word, you know, just like pretty words, or is it that in that water of baptism, I committed myself or I pledged? I didn't get saved there, but it's, but it's so close to that salvation that it's as though it's indicative of my confession of salvation is what I stand on. Christ holds me fast, I'm secure, and now I have responsibility to live out my profession and that we do, you know what? I think maybe in our accountability groups, we ought to start asking this question. You want to know what to ask your accountability partner? And if you say you don't have an accountability partner, get one. Maybe you ought to ask them this Have you been baptized? And if they say no, if I was Peter, I would say, What do you mean no? I don't think Peter knew of an unbaptized Christian. I don't, that, that didn't register to him. And if you said, Well, you know, I'm not baptized because I'm not a Christian, then, I, then, then you know what you would say? Have I got good news for you? 
I got really good news that Jesus suffered the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God. And so you can find salvation in Christ, and then you can get baptized as a confession or profession or demonstration of your incredible faith in Christ. And then my accountability question would be this. Are you living out your confession of baptism? So when you turn on your computer on Monday morning, are you living out your confession of baptism? So when you walk by your neighbor, are you living out your confession of baptism? So that when you're finding other fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, are we nourishing and admonishing one another? Because in baptism, I made a, prof- a profession, a profession that reflected my true faith in Jesus. It was a pledge that I made, and I'm going to live out that pledge. College Park, let's be the baptized church of Jesus Christ who is so encouraged that God holds us in the worst of times and then we say, and Jesus, we're committed to you. We're going to live for you. We're going to say, like maybe in the baptism we'll, we'll say, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. Or we'll say like Martin Luther said, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. I like to sing that. I just wonder, do I believe it? So if you're baptized and you're going to live out your baptism and you're going to lose your job, is that okay? If you're baptized and you're going to live out your confession and some people aren't going to like you, is that okay? If you're baptized and you're going to live out your confession and you're going to die, is that okay? Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. Because you know what? His kingdom is forever. So there's a boat and there's a baptistry. (laughs) He will hold me fast. Let good and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. That's my confession of faith. Man, I need to be living that confession of faith. And as I do, watch the challenges come. Then the third point, here's the last one, and I got two minutes. Verse 22. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven, that verb for has gone is the exact same word as in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. So you could translate it, who has went into heaven. How's that for good English? It's not good English. It would be good Greek, though. So it it could be that when he went and proclaimed to the spirits of prison, it's when he went into heaven in the ascension. In our Christian kind of subculture, we're pretty good at Easter We're pretty good at Good Friday and Easter and Christmas, and we're pretty lousy at Ascension Sunday, which was how many days? This is trivia, right? 40 days after, wasn't it after the resurrection that Jesus ascends to heaven, and in the church calendar, there's a celebration for Ascension Sunday. And my goal, you can hold me to it, and if I fail, Jesus still holds me fast, that I want to celebrate, at least in my own heart, Ascension Sunday, because Ascension Sunday is that day where Jesus went up to the Father And the church historically has understood that to be a statement of exaltation, that that Christ who suffered was a Christ who is now exalted. He sits on the throne, and and watch what it says. He's gone into heaven. He is at the right hand of God, which means a position of authority, the triune God, with angels and authorities and powers being subjected to him. All of hell is subjected to that ascended Lord. He's king. And, you know, we live in a world where I, I understand that the millennials like to have something that they can hold on to 
some, a cause for which to fight. Let me tell you what the cause for which to fight and to die is. It's the cause of a risen, exalted king. And so we bow our knee and say, Jesus is king. That's part of what we say when we're in the baptismal. I'm committing myself to the king because that's the cause that's worth dying for church. And then I would say this. Here's the way to conclude this sermon. When Jesus was ascended, you remember what he said just before he was ascended? He said, all power is given to me in heaven and in earth. That's like all power. That's like all of it. He's the king. Then he said this to you and to me, the people of God. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. All nations, by the way, has a diversity to it that I love. By the way, we have a diversity group, and we're going to be meeting in the next, I'm not, but they'll be meeting in the next hour, talking about how in the world do you go after diversity, all people, all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And here's King James, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. In church, that's our marching orders. We got them. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I, I pray that wherever I didn't handle this text well, you'll translate it well. But in my own heart, Lord, I thank you for such a wonderful salvation that you, the just, died for the unjust, and I sit on that side of the ledger as unjust, and I say, thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. And I pray that if there are some here this morning that don't know you, that this would be the day where you, the just God, would make the unjust righteous by imputing the righteousness of your Son, Jesus Christ. And then for those of us that are believers, thank you for the boat. Thank you that come hell or high water, you will hold us fast. And then I thank you too, Lord, that you've given us the privilege of making a pledge to you. And Lord, make us, College Park Church, people who are faithful to our pledge, to our commitment to you, Lord. And we do it bowing our knee and saying, he's risen from the dead, he has overcome death, and he sits exalted. And Lord, may we sing and worship you for who you are this morning. I pray all that in Jesus' name. Amen.